just want people to understand that this is not simply flyover country. This is not a place that has no culture. That, in fact, there is a strong literary and historical tradition in this region. Uh, but most people have forgotten it. That was John Lauk. He is the president of the Midwestern History Association. He's an adjunct professor at uh, the University of South Dakota. And he's our guest today right here on Radio Free Acton. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's my pleasure, as usual, to be your host here today. And really, uh, I'm just going to be pointing the way to Bruce Edward Walker today. He's taken over the microphone uh, on the interview with John Lauk, uh, which will be coming up in just a moment. Before we get to that, though, I do want to highlight as well, Bruce is back uh, with another edition of Upstream, which is our new culture segment here on Radio Free Acton. This week, we're going to be talking about former Pink Floyd frontman Roger Waters. Uh, he of The Wall, Fame, and many other classic Pink Floyd albums. Uh, and, of course, a lot of solo albums since uh, 1980 when the group split up, or 1980 or thereabouts. Uh, he's he's written a lot of music since then. There's been a lot of politics involved in it, a lot of social criticism, and that pattern continues on his latest album, which is called Is This the World We Really Want? Uh, Bruce Edward Walker will be giving us his review of Roger Waters' new album. That's coming up in just a few moments uh, after our interview with John Lauk, which we're going to get to right now. Here's Bruce Edward Walker speaking with John Lauk on Radio Free Acton. Hello, I'm Bruce Edward Walker, and today I'm sitting with John K. Lauk, who is founding president of the Midwestern History Association, associate editor and book review editor of the Middle West Review, as well as an adjunct professor of history and political science at the University of South Dakota. Where is it still chilly there, John? We're warming up finally. Fantastic. So I imagine the fly fishing there is probably pretty darn good. Fly fishing is out in the West River part of South Dakota, out in the Black Hills. We mostly have walleyes and perch in my part of the state. Well, you can still fly fish for walleye and perch. I wouldn't recommend it, but it can be done. Yes. Well, John is also the editor of The Lost Region Toward a Revival of Midwestern History. And if you're Recognizing a pattern here, his new book is From Warm Center to Ragged Edge, The Erosion of Midwestern Literary and Historical Regionalism, 1920 to 1965, which is recently published by the University of Iowa Press. So uh, tell me, what, uh, what led you to want to write this book? I mean, it seems to be your passion is uh, trying to resuscitate the forgotten art of and history of the Midwest. Well, thanks, Bruce. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's fun to be talking with you. This project started several years ago when I wrote a book on Dakota Territory, and I noticed that all of the settlers coming into Dakota Territory in the 1880s were Midwesterners, about 90% of them. So I thought I needed to know more about the Midwest and the cultural hearth from which these settlers were, were coming. And I started digging into this uh, question, and I discovered there wasn't very much Midwestern history. There wasn't a Midwestern History Association. There weren't any survey books about Midwestern history. And so I ultimately ended up writing this book you just mentioned, The Lost Region, which was a call to arms for more people to do history of the Midwest. 
Um, to follow up on that book, I did the new book called uh, From Warm Center to Ragged Edge, which is trying to explain why did Midwestern history, Midwestern culture, Midwestern literature um, fall into eclipse uh, in the years after World War II. Uh, the title is, a, uh, is uh, me borrowing from Fitzgerald, uh, who came from St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, specifically, it comes from The Great Gatsby, where uh, Nick Carraway is thinking about his future and where is he going to be? Is he going to return to Minnesota? And he thinks to himself, uh, that's no longer the warm center of the world for me. I need to go find my fortune somewhere else. And that's why he moves to New York City. He ultimately returns to the Midwest and is much more appreciative of it. But that's the backstory on the title. Well, and this might be jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, recall that uh, several years ago, there was a movie made out of uh, Prairie Home Companion where uh, the businessman who is trying to shut down the radio program is in the F. Scott Fitzgerald Theater and does not recognize who F. Scott Fitzgerald is, whose statue is in the lobby of the theater, which, which goes to how the East Coast elites, even though Garrison Keillor, Garrison Keillor is from uh, the Midwest himself, is more or less a... East Coast cultural snob. Well, uh, Fitz or uh, Garrison Keillor, we should give him uh, a little bit of credit for reviving the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul. I think when he decided to run his radio show out of uh, St. Paul, he purposely renamed it the Fitzgerald Theater and kind of revived this consciousness of Fitzgerald being a St. Paulite. Um, uh, Keeler is from Anoka, Minnesota, and of course has a kind of mixed record when it comes to how much he loves or hates the Midwest, depending on the day. Right. There are many things to appreciate about your book, John, and uh, one of them is the the epigraph from Ralph Waldo Emerson at the very beginning, where you say, where Ralph Waldo Emerson says, and you quote him, "Man is surprised to find that things near are not less beautiful and wondrous than things remote." Talk a little bit about that. Well, I like that uh, line from Emerson because uh, he was part of this movement in the 19th century to try and establish a more uh, American and American-based culture in the United States. Because, of course, um, the uh, writers and the culture of the United States was highly derivative in the early days of the 19th century, in the decades after the Revolution. And, of course, it was highly British, highly European. If people were going to uh, see the cultural sites of the world, they went to Paris and London. Uh, Emerson and some other writers in the United States began to make the case that, hey, we have a culture here. We have uh, a civilization here that's unique. Uh, we have a unique group of people here. And we need to study uh, where we came from. We need to understand our own roots. And I think that sentiment very much applies to the Midwestern regionalists that I'm trying to get people to pay attention to with this book. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about what prompted the marginalization, or in, to use your word, the eclipse of Midwestern writers and historians? Well, I would say the uh, years around World War II were decisive in this, uh, in this sad decline. 
Of course, uh, World War II was uh, a noble cause in many ways, but uh, one of the consequences of the war was a tendency to look outward and to become more deeply involved in the world and see things like regionalism as less important. And it was combined with um, a greater embrace of an extreme cosmopolitanism by certain intellectuals and a narrow form of cosmopolitanism, unfortunately, a cosmopolitanism that did not include local cultures and regional cultures, uh, unfortunately. And there was a hostility to the interior sections of the country uh, that came from the coast, from Manhattan, from, from Hollywood. And this is one thing I discuss in the book, is this uh, supposed revolt from the village that the Eastern critics thought was happening in the Midwest. And uh, the way they saw it, many Midwestern writers were hypercritical of the region. And I taught it that way for many years when I was teaching my courses. But when I actually went back and took a deeper look at what these writers were saying, and I'm thinking of people like Sinclair Lewis and Sherwood Anderson and Edgar Lee Masters, I found that it was really quite to the contrary, uh, that they had a great deal of love for the region. Certainly there's a lot of respect for the, uh, the uh, fanfare for the common man, so to speak, in uh, Edgar Lee Masters' Spoon River Anthology. Certainly there's uh, uh, some, some degrading characteristics to some of the poems in there, but also, there's a lot of respect for the individuals who plow through day-to-day life. Right. I think it's more of a, a focus on uh, how people actually lived and less of a focus on the Victorian drawing rooms of 19th century uh, Eastern seaboard culture. And I think that uh, Master's portrayals of these individuals in Spoon River Anthology is highly mixed at the worst. And in fact, uh, he said later on, I had a lot of affection for those characters that I, um, that I outlined in Spoon River Anthology. But what I am saying is that we need to move beyond Spoon River Anthology when it comes to masters, because that's where most people stop if they sample masters at all. In fact, he had a 30-year career after Spoon River Anthology in which he wrote some wonderful books about the Midwest, including a great history of the Home River Valley, the Sangamon River Valley uh, that he grew up, where he grew up in downstate Illinois, and, um, and many other works. But people don't remember that part of Masters, and that's what I'm trying to get people to understand with the book, that there's a much more uh, developed character there. Well, the same could be said about the provincialism that you would find in, say, Sinclair Lewis, that uh, he was lampooning. And when one mentions Sinclair Lewis, which one doesn't normally mention Sinclair Lewis as much as one would, say, uh, discuss Babbittry. Right. If you uh, And remember, uh, George Babbitt returns to his hometown and settles in and is very happy in his town. Um, more prominent than Babbitt probably is uh, Main Street, the other prominent book by Lewis that uh, led him to win the Nobel Prize, first American to win the Nobel Prize for literature. And when I reread Main Street for this book, after many years of not paying much attention to it, I noticed that the degree of criticism that Lewis uh, dishes out for Carol Kennicott, the, ma- the 
famous character in the book, is is quite high. I think uh, probably he's lampooning the critics of Midwestern small towns as much as he's criticizing them in that book. One of the other uh, topics that you bring up as marginalizing the Midwest study of literature and history is mass culture. And when I was reading that, I was thinking perhaps maybe you could have talked about some of the Paul Henning programs that were prominent in the late 60s, early 70s. And by that, I mean Petticoat Junction, uh, Green Acres, the Beverly Hillbillies, because uh, one could take a lot from that that was very respectful of Midwestern culture. Uh, Green Acres, for example, actually takes place in a fictionalized aspect of Kansas. And what happens there is the guy comes from the big city, Oliver Wendell Douglas comes from the big city, and is constantly being flummoxed by and outsmarted by the citizens of Hooterville. <laughs> well, no, that's a very good point, although that kind of pop culture is a little thin and superficial, and I would like people to delve into some of the more sophisticated writers uh, about the region. But also remember, there was this thing called the Rural Purge of the early 1970s. I don't know if you remember this, but some TV executives thought that these programs were a little too clownish or buffoonish or not serious enough. And so in the early 1970s, they, they, um, they canceled all of those programs to put on more, quote-unquote, serious programs. Right, a little bit more adult so that they could uh, bring up the uh, demographic of their viewership. And, uh, yeah, Fred Silverberg, I believe, was the, the head of CBS that canceled all the programs, even though they were all top-rated. So um, anyway, what, 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 other, what other aspects of mass culture do you perceive being marginalizing? Well, the, the point I want to make in the book is that in the early 20th century, before the rise of radio, before the rise in particular of television, there was a much stronger rural-rooted regional culture. And uh, people in particular states, um, there, there were writers that rose to great fame and were well-known and were household names. I think of people like Booth Darkington, for example, out in Indiana. Um, but in the era of mass culture, uh, no one talks about those local figures, those local color writers, those regional voices. And uh, when we focus too much on what's happening um, in the mass culture, uh, we lose that part of our heritage and identity. Elsewhere in the book, you talk about Senator Joseph McCarthy, uh, Tail Gunner Joe, who uh, suffers from infamy for his uh, so-called communist witch hunts of the, of the 1950s. And you say that, or don't let me put words in your mouth, but uh, the, the takeaway from that is that he also served to promote the view of Midwesterners as being provincials. Right. I think that uh, we cannot estimate the degree of frustration among intellectuals and writers in the early 1950s with McCarthy, uh, and justifiably so, given uh, many of his charges. But the effect of all that frustration with McCarthy and all that uh, hatred of McCarthy was to cause a lot of derision of the region. And uh, people would frequently point out, well, McCarthy's uh, this backwoods hick from out in the sticks, and uh, he, he is promoting this kind of rural paranoia. 
and uh, he's supported by these crazy redneck red hunters out in the Midwest. And so the effect of uh, McCarthy, even though he left the scene pretty early by the mid-1950s, the effect of McCarthy was to cause a lot of criticism from the coasts of places like Wisconsin. One of the parts of your book that actually blew my hair back was you, you pivot very deftly, I might add, from Senator Joseph McCarthy to another Midwesterner who uh, it is, was a resident of Macosta, Michigan, and that's Russell Kirk. So uh, when, you, when you talk about him, you, 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 call, you quote Kirk calling himself a northern agrarian. Now, can you explain what he meant by that? And by that, I'm assuming that you're piggybacking on, or Kirk was piggybacking on the southern agrarians. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I should say uh, this is very much in your part of the country, Bruce. Uh, you're from Midland, Michigan. That's not very far from Macosta, where the, uh, the Kirk compound is, where he used to write all these books and articles and became a major public intellectual. But yes, uh, he was very interesting. He used this phrase, northern agrarian, and he was tying into the uh, school of... Uh, Southern regionalism that came out of Nashville in the 1930s. Uh, there's a historian actually here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, by the name of Paul Murphy, who wrote a great book about the history of the Southern agrarians called The Rebuke to History. But the Southern agrarians, uh, unfortunately, even though they made a lot of great uh, arguments about decentralizing the economy and promoting uh, a rural way of life, they also were kind of mixed up in um, Southern racial uh, politics. But uh, that was very much different than Northern agrarianism, which is what Russell Kirk embraced, which was a, um, a embrace of the tradition of small-scale farms, sort of homestead agriculture, decentralized living, people on the land, a sense of rootedness, and, you know, this is very much in keeping with what um, Kirk was trying to get across to the world in the early 1950s when everyone was worried about mass culture and cosmopolitan leaving behind the interior places of the country. Well, um, I, I know this from personal experience, having known Russell back in the, in the 70s and 80s and knowing that he was an ardent fan of Orestes Brownson. And uh, you write also that he was also inspired by George Ade. So why don't you tell our audience a little bit about George Ade and, and his influence on, on Kirk? Well, it's an odd story. I'd never heard about this until I started working on this book. But George Ade was an Indiana writer and was a pretty prominent voice in the early 19th or in the early 20th century and wrote a lot of books and articles about life in the Midwest. And uh, apparently... Russell Kirk was a fan of George Aid, and so started the George Aid Society when he was a very young man um, in the 30s and 40s. And um, this was a clear marker of his interest in promoting Midwestern regionalism. Later on, he, um, and I ran across this in the Newberry Archives down in Chicago, uh, Russell Kirk later on began circulating a memo outlining a um, new journal of thought and this journal of thought was supposed to focus on Midwesterners and people that are left out of the culture and finding those voices again. Uh, ultimately, that proposal evolved into 
The Creation of Modern Age, uh, which is still published today and well-known in, um, in Kirk circles and Acton circles, I'm sure. But originally, the plan for Modern Age was for it to be a journal of Midwestern regionalism. Let, let's get back to the, the entirety of your book. It, it seems to me that this is a Midwestern version, and we're, we're far more polite here in the Midwest than uh, other places of uh, the country. This is a, a very gentle manifesto. Would you agree with that assessment? I think that's fair. I just want people to understand that this is not simply flyover country. This is not a place that has no culture, that, in fact, there is a strong literary and historical tradition in this region, uh, but most people have forgotten it, and uh, we need to recover that older tradition. Well, actually, we we have a Nobel laureate from the Midwest now, and that, that would be Bob Dylan. So uh, we, we have that going for us. So uh, where, where can we find your book? The book uh, can easily be found on Amazon.com. Uh, also, going to the website of the University of Iowa Press, who published the book uh, as part of their new series, Trying to Revive Interest in the Midwest. Terrific. I'm speaking with John K. Lauk, who is the author of the new book, From Warm Center to Ragged Edge. Terrific read, and thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks, Bruce. Appreciate it. Joining us on the phone right now, Bruce Edward Walker, the host of our cultural segment, Upstream. And uh, Bruce, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Mark. Well, it's great to have you back. What have you What have you got for us this week? Well, there's a new album and upcoming tour by former Pink Floyd bassist, lyricist, composer Roger Waters. And uh, the name of the album that he's touring behind is "Is This the Life We Really Want?" And I think the answer to that supposedly rhetorical question is a resounding. No, you know I, I've been a, I've been a fan of Pink Floyd for a long time um, since really I was in high school, and increasingly Roger Waters has become less and less uh, I guess my cup of tea. Uh, what does he what, what has he got to say on uh, is this the life we're looking for? Well, it's a little bit more of the same, uh, and with the added helping, he's unhappy with many many things. He's unhappy with the environment. He's unhappy with the election of Donald Trump. He wasn't happy that Donald Trump was running against Hillary Clinton because he has no kind words for her as well. Uh, he is losing sleep over Brexit, even though he's lived in the United States for the last 17 years. So, yeah, he's just an unhappy camper, and there's just no David Gilmore soft vocals to lighten the load for him. So he's carrying it all by himself, where he's ostensibly sonically trying to recreate the, the sound of Pink Floyd's seminal albums from the 1970s. So you pick up a lot of clues and hints from, say, Animals and uh, Wish You Were Here and a whole lot of sonic landscapes that uh, were made prominent in Dark Side of the Moon. Well, Bruce, it seems like it's... It following Waters' career a bit, it seems like it's been a long time since he's actually been happy with anything, uh, at least publicly. Uh, th but there's there's like a disconnect that, that you have with Waters as he as he rails against all these structures and systems, uh, rails against capitalism and uh, and the wealthy. But he's, he's, I guess we could say he's not a poor man himself. Well, no, I mean, he, he's 
actually made his massive financial bones off of Dark Side of the Moon, and the prominent song on that was a song called Money, where he basically said that it's the root of all evil today, and proceeded to, you know, basically cash in. And now he's, uh, he wrapped up a massive world tour of his Pink Floyd opus, The Wall, where it's estimated that he made $500 million. So uh, you're right. There, there's a certain disconnect that is warranted when he builds multi-million dollar mansions in New York while he's railing against capitalism and corporate profits and expressing his disgust for, for greed and concern for the environment when his tours gross hundreds of millions of dollars and employ dozens of carbon-emitting diesel semi-trucks. And certainly he employs a lot of musicians, which is a, a nice thing. He provides you know, terrific entertainment, uh, maybe less so these days. But um, one of the things that, uh, that bothers me the most is that uh, during the Wall Tour, he was making such a profound statement about environmentalism and climate change and, and what have you, and uh, no one seemed to notice in the audience that there were 20, 25, 26 huge diesel semi-trucks parked behind the stadium where I saw him. Sacrifices must be made, Bruce. Well, yes. I, uh, <laughs> so I guess in that respect, uh, the avowed socialist of uh, Roger Waters is uh, serving a greater cause, much like the enormous compound on which Al Gore lives in Tennessee. The H word comes to mind, and I, I, I really dislike using that word, but sometimes it, you just have to call it for what it is, and that's hypocrisy. Well, Bruce, I guess the, the other question that comes to mind is, how is the album itself? Is the music any good? Well, if you're a fan of 70s Pink Floyd, it, it, it's terrific. I mean, the, the, sonically, the album threads together you know, the sounds from the Pink Floyd catalog from throughout the 1970s which gives the album a certain reissue feel, uh, where Rogers is, Roger Waters is basically reclaiming the music that uh, he co-wrote, that he played on, that he toured behind for uh, many, many years before the whole Pink Floyd apparatus fell apart in the early 80s. So it gives the, it, it is almost like buying a reissue. There, you're not going to be shocked or wowed by new sonic landscapes because he's retreading old ground but the old ground that he's retreading is pretty remarkable and uh some of the uh, the songs themselves almost come across as if they were deleted from pink floyd sessions from the 1970s uh including uh there's a song called picture that that sounds like it could come straight from animals and there are references to, to dogs. There's references to Welcome to the Machine throughout. And it's not a bad thing. Picture yourself as you lean on the port rail, tossing away your last cigarette. Picture your finger pushing the doorbell. Picture the skull and crossbones on the doorman. The majority of Pink Floyd richly rewards repeated listening and... I guess um, you could say that Waters is artistically entitled to lift, plagiarize, plunder his own musical heritage. Well, there are a lot of themes that stretch across uh, Pink Floyd's music over the years that are pretty consistent, though, I think. Well, absolutely, Mark. But I, I think where Pink Floyd was enormously successful artistically in the 1970s was that they dealt with universal themes. You know, Ezra Pound, the, the poet, said that uh, poetry is news that stays news. 
So if you were to take the 70s output of Pink Floyd and listen to it, you'd say, wow, well, this is, this is news that stays news because it has universal themes. He, he doesn't tether it directly to current events of the 1970s as well he, he well could have. But that's why a lot of punk from that era didn't survive. People don't listen to it now because it's of its era. And when Pink Floyd released the final cut, the final album of the original quartet, there was a lot of references to the Falkland War and this, that, and the other thing, uh, Reagan and Gorbachev. And it, it really kind of anchors it to the early 80s. And you listen to it now and you say, oh, yeah, I remember that. But it's like watching uh, old episodes of the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather. It's like, yeah, I, I remember that that happened, but, you know, it doesn't have a good beat and you can't really dance to it. There's also the, I guess, from my perspective, there's the problem that in those those early '80s albums, or at least in the final cut, particularly, the kind of the dystopia that Waters was talking about really wasn't much of a dystopia. Well, he sort of kind of got it wrong, and uh, there's still many British musicians and who are against Maggie Thatcher, and they, they sort of kind of pride themselves, puff themselves up that. Uh, Yes, they, they were part of the resistance against Maggie Thatcher, just like uh, many of the 80s American musicians puffed themselves up that they were anti-Reagan. And But look what happened. Uh, economically, they had it all wrong. The, the socialism that they were expounding doesn't work. And uh, far be it for musicians to take classes in economics, but you know, at least they should know a little bit about financing. And when you take on corporate greed as... Roger Waters does repeatedly, what he seems to ignore, much like Bruce Springsteen does, is he is the head of a corporation. He hires, he fires, he tours, he has to take uh, into account venues and ticket receipts, ticket sales. He has to look at who's buying the T-shirts and all the merchandise. He has to ride herd on all of the musicians that are performing with him management, publicity, the whole nine yards. So they, they seem to think that they exist in uh, a vacuum that is devoid of what they would term greed, when it's really about making profits and, uh, you know, doing the best you can. And, uh, you know, my attitude is more power to them. Well, Bruce, thanks for talking to us today. Uh, a final word on Roger Waters for us? Sure. I, I, I might have been a little harsh on the album because not all of it is, you know, perpetual angst. And uh, is this the life we really want? Actually, does have some uh, very fine songs that feature redemption of sorts, dealing with universalities uh, and human relationships, you know, much like he ended Animals. And a song off the new album called Wait for Her, for example, Waters sings, speak softly as a flute would to a fearful violin, breathe out, breathe in. So I, I, my, my final word would be, exactly, breathe, Roger, breathe. Speak softly as a flute would to a fearful violin. Breathe out, breathe in. Well, that brings us to the end of another edition of Radio Free Acton. 
Uh, people to thank today, of course, first of all, John Lauk uh, of the uh, University of South Dakota and the Midwestern History Association. Thanks for joining us today to talk about your new book, uh, From Warm Center to Ragged Edge. You can find that on Amazon. Very interesting read. Uh, thanks as well to uh, Bruce Edward Walker for coming alongside us again today and uh, not only conducting the interview, but tossing in a new segment of Upstream as well. Always good to have Bruce around on the podcast, and I thank him for his work this week. And uh, our producer as well, Daniel Menjavar, who uh, does a lot of behind-the-scenes work here at Radio Free Act and helping to pull these episodes together. Thank you very much, Daniel, for all your hard work as well. And thank you to, uh, to you for listening here on Radio Free Acton. Uh, if you get a moment, uh, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe on uh, iTunes or uh, Google Play. Uh, if you can, leave a leave a rating and a review for us. And uh, if you know of others who might be interested in Radio Free Acton or the work of the Acton Institute, send them our way as well. We'd love to have more folks listening in uh, every week. In the meantime, that's all for now. We're going to talk to you again on future editions of Radio Free Acton. Have a good day, everybody. We'll talk to you later. <laughs>